Praise the Lord for His mercy. Even in small things like tissue boxes, when pollen and cedar pollen is killing me. So I think that's part of the thorns and thistles that we would have to go through. I can't imagine in the Garden of Eden there was cedar pollen or any allergies. If there was cedar pollen, then then no one was allergic to them. Well, we're talking today about peace, not peace with, with nature, but peace with man and peace with God. Uh, peace is a popular term. It's thrown around a lot in our world today. It has been ever since nations began, ever since there was strife between man and man. I've read of Neville Chamberlain in 1938 saying that there was going to be peace in our time because he had had a meeting with Adolf Hitler and they had had peace with Germany. One year later, they declared war and World War II, the cost of 70 to 80 million lives. There is no peace in our time without Christ. There is no peace in our time without Christ. And there'll never be peace perfectly in the world until Christ returns. So today we're looking at the book of Ephesians as we had been doing before our Christmas uh, season there. And, and we're looking at Paul's letter to Ephesus. And he wants to teach them about what to believe. That's the doctrinal part, the first half. And then he wants to teach them how to live that out. That's the second half. So what we believe, what we should know, the truth of God, and how to live it out. Live out what you know. Live out what you believe. And so we're in this doctrinal part, right in the middle of chapter 2, as where we left off. And I want to cover today Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. I've already covered 11 and 12 in a sermon. I'm going to read to you 11 through 18, and then we'll look specifically at 13 through 18. The title of the sermon is, Christ is our peace. So if you would, open your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2. If you need a Bible or you want the same translation I'm reading from, there should be one close to you in the chairs in front of you. Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having it put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Lord, we pray that this passage would soak into our hearts and minds today, that we would understand what true peace really is, peace with the brethren and the church, peace with you, God, most of all, eternal peace with you. Help me as the preacher to proclaim these things, help my voice and and sinuses to hold up, and I pray that my listeners would take this word in, your word, and they would live out the implications of this text. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Peace. As I said, we talk much about peace. People think peace is attainable. 
they think peace is attainable without God. In fact, many people are doing away with any mention of God. And the places we need it most, and the places we need truth and scripture the most, they're saying, we don't want to hear it. Get God out of the schools. Get God out of the workplace. Get God out of the government. We don't want to hear scripture. But it is the truth that brings us to peace with God. It is the gospel that we see in scripture. Well, there's peace with each other. And we see that that's not at all happening right now in the world. Every day, there is not peace. At any moment, our country could go to war. At any moment, there's struggles within a family. At any moment, you and a friend, even a brother in Christ might be at odds. There's also not peace with God because so many are perishing. So many are lost in the world. So many need to hear the gospel. But with Christ, you can have peace with God. With Christ, you can have peace with one another in the church. There ought to be peace in the church of all places. There ought to be peace within the church. Yet hostility and and enmity often find their way into the church. A church can divide over silly issues. It can divide over legalism. There can be people coming in, stirring up trouble and affecting a church's peace. Well, legalism was a main issue in Paul's day. In fact, Judaizers were going around from church to church telling people they needed to live under the Old Testament law. They needed to put themselves back under the Mosaic law. Even though they were Gentiles and had never been under the law, they were supposed to put themselves under the law. And this was dividing churches. This is a major concern for the New Testament writers. And even though Ephesus is it's pretty much a model church, we don't know of any real specific problems like we see in Galatia and the Galatian letter. Paul's still concerned that this idea of putting yourself under the law, trying to earn something by the law. Paul's concerned about that. And and we ought to be concerned today as well. This issue, as I'll mention later, hasn't died down. There are still people that are legalistic. There are still legalists trying to get you to earn your way to God through the law. And there are still legalists who know the truth of the gospel, but try to impose commands upon you that are not to be imposed on us as new covenant believers. So Paul here wants to show us that Christ is our peace. He's done all the work to give us peace between each other and between us and God. So I'm going to lay that out with three main points. And in the middle point, we're going to get a little deeper and talk about the law and talk about what's actually happened at the cross with regards to the law. So first of all, I want you to see in this passage the result of peace. He just starts off by telling you the result of peace. We did not have peace with God verses 11 and 12. But in 13, we have peace. But now, you see that phrase in the Bible, you ought to smile, you ought to rejoice. Because often, especially in Paul's letters like Romans and Ephesians, he'll say we once were sinners and we once were lost and we once deserved God's wrath, but now. But now there's been a change. Something has happened. God has done something. Christ has done something. So this is one of those places where we rejoice to see this. Our old position was one in which we as Gentiles, most of us here being Gentiles, ancestry being Gentiles, we were outside the people of God. We did not have all the promises that we have now that we're saved and we can look at the scriptures and apply them to us. We did not have those promises. And that's what Paul covers in 11 and 12. I preached on that about a month ago. And there he says, 
that we're without Christ. We're Christless. We're without a Messiah. There in, in 11 and 12, he says, we're alienated from the citizenship of Israel. We're homeless. We have no Messiah. We have no home, he says, as Gentiles. We, we're strangers to the covenants. A Gentile can't just up and say, all those covenants in the Old Testament apply to me, unless they're in Christ. But we're Christless. We were at one time. We were homeless. We were covenantless. We were hopeless. We had no hope. You talk about depressing. To be told in the Bible that without Christ you have no hope. We were godless. We were atheists. Not that the Gentiles did not know of gods, but they did not live in such a way to know the true God. They did not know the true God of the Bible. That's who we once were. Even, even though you might say, I grew up in a Christian home, until God changed your heart, that still describes you. You were without Christ. You were without God. You did not have access to those covenants. You did not have a, a future home. And you had no hope. That was all of us. But now, now that we're in Christ, look at what we have. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near. Only if we're in Christ Jesus. Now all of those problems are solved. We're not perfect people now, but we have Christ. We have a home, a future home. We have these covenants that were originally given to Israel that also will get applied to us if we're in Christ. We're grafted in. We're also no longer strangers. We're no longer hopeless. And we've been brought near to God. We're not godless. Something has changed. When God changes your heart, everything else changes when it comes to applying the Scripture to your life. I'm not talking about individual application, just application as a whole. The Bible is now relevant to you. As an unbeliever, you might have said, yeah, I know Scripture is important. You might have memorized some verses. You might have been made to, to go to church and read the Bible. But I think you can attest if you're saved here today that the Bible means so much more to you once you're saved. And the Bible talks to us like this. It says that the scales are removed from our eyes. That our heart is no longer hard toward God's word, but it's soft towards God's word. We love God's word. We want to know God's word. And we began to read the Old Testament and see these promises that are given to Abraham's descendants. And then we get to the New Testament. And Paul says those same promises are given to us as Gentiles. Galatians, Ephesians, Anglo-Saxons, Hispanic, African, Asian. If you're in Christ, things have changed. Things are new. God is doing something new. And, and we once were very far off from God. We were far off as Gentiles. That meaning that we did not have the word of God. The Gentile heritage did not have the word of God. My ancestors, at the time that Christ came to this earth, my ancestors in, in the British Isles and in Germany were not knowing of Christ. They did not have a Savior. They did not have the Scriptures. The Jews did. They were considered near. Not that they were all saved automatically, but at least they had the Word of God. At least they had the sacrificial system. At least they had the teaching of God's Word. But those who are far off, Gentiles, no hope until Christ brings you near. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the result of peace. We can be near to God. We can be with God. We can be with God forever in eternal salvation. 
Sometimes we don't really understand how far away we were before God saved us. Where would you have ended up if God had not changed your heart? If God had not saved you, would you even be alive today? Would you be in prison? Would you have ruined your life? Thrown away your job? Harmed your children? Your spouse? Who knows what would have happened in our hearts had God not changed us? Had God not saved us? And we're brought near to Him now. And it's done by the blood of Christ. This is the means by which He brought us near. Not by your own works. You, you did not bring yourself near to God. You did not do what it took to bring yourself close to God so that He would listen to your prayers and so that He would save you. It's by the blood of Christ. His atoning sacrifice on the cross. It took us pagan Gentiles near to God. Christ did the work. He did all the work. Yes, we must have faith, but realize the work was done long before you ever had faith. The sacrifice was accomplished long before you ever had faith. Israel was near to God because they had the word, but the blood of Christ brought both Jew and Gentile into a saving relationship with God. An eternal saving relationship. Yes, they had the sacrifices and they could, they could have saving faith in the Old Testament, but they were still waiting for the final sacrifice the one who would die on the cross for their sins the one who would die in such a way that they didn't have to continue sacrificing bulls and goats which will never fully atone for sins when christ shed his blood when he died on the cross he brought to us forgiveness he brought to us forgiveness not everyone but those who have faith in him he brought to us forgiveness that means we don't have to pay the price for our sin debt It's forgiven. It's wiped away. It's gone. And he propitiated the wrath of God. You can't come near if you still have the wrath of God upon you. It's not enough that your sin is just wiped away. That's glorious. But let's not forget, there's still a wrath of God upon us. We're born sinners. And it won't be long before we sin again. So not only have we been forgiven of every sin, but also God's wrath has been satisfied in the cross, in the blood of Christ. We don't have to worry that when something bad happens in our life, that that's the wrath of God, starting the eternal punishment. No, we know that might be discipline in our life, but we're not starting our eternal punishment under the wrath of God. It's gone for everybody that's in Christ. We've been brought near. We're close to God. We're with God forever. So that's the result of peace. That's just starting off, Paul says, in a very short statement. We've been brought near. Now he's going to go into how we've been brought near. How how has that been accomplished? Because the word peace hasn't even come up yet in verse 13. But it's through the making of peace. Number two, the making of peace that we have this result of peace in 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 verse 13. So he's now going to go into how this peace was made with God and between man. How is it done? How is it accomplished? There's a lot to overcome. If you know your Old Testament, there is a lot to overcome so that Jew and Gentile can be brought together and that both of us can be brought to God. And so Paul just starts off, for, let me explain it to you, he says. Here's how it works. For he, that's Christ, the last person mentioned, he himself is our peace. Peace means a 
a lack of hostility and mutual acceptance between those who were hostile or appeared to be hostile. Paul talked in, in verse 11 of this uncircumcised versus circumcised. Paul's not encouraging that debate, but that's already going on, he says. The Jews look down their noses at the Gentiles, and the Gentiles hate the Jews because of their practices, their sacrifices, their lifestyle, their beliefs. There's a great hostility between them. And he says, Christ is our peace. There's also this hostility between us and God for our sin. Christ is our peace in that situation as well. No matter how you look at it, either man to man or man to God, Christ is the answer. You know, we often joke that that's a Sunday school answer, that every kid should just say Jesus when asked a theological question. But it is quite amazing how many times the, the word Jesus will answer almost every theological question that we have in Scripture. Christ is our peace. There, there's no more hostility. There's a mutual acceptance. And it's not even just for those who were hostile but appeared to be hostile. But now he's our peace. Now we love those people. Not that we love necessarily everyone the same way, but those who have been brought near to God, we love them. We love them like brothers and sisters in our family. He himself is our peace. Normally peace is out here somewhere. It's an abstract thought. It's something we're, we're attaining. We're trying to get peace. And Paul says, no, peace is in a person. It's in a person. It's in Jesus Christ. It's been personified in him. That's why he's called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9, 6. He is the Prince of Peace. And he's not just someone else's peace. Paul says he's our peace. He's our peace. He's not peace for the unbelieving world. He's not. I know people talk about that. Liberal Christians and churches talk about that. But he's not peace for the unbelieving world. He's wrath against the unbelieving world. It says he's coming back with a sword. Fire coming out of his mouth to judge, to punish. That's what the book of Revelation is mostly about. But he's our peace. There'll never be peace in the world until Christ returns. But right now we can have peace. We can have peace with one another and we can have peace with God through Christ who is our peace. Now Paul's going to explain this because any scholar of the Bible, any student of the Bible, even a new believer who's read a little bit knows that there's some issues to overcome. And so he's going to explain and the next couple of verses, how this works. What has Christ done that gives us peace between one another and gives us peace with God? First of all, we have peace within the church. We often think of peace with God as the most important, and it is. But here, there's such an issue going on in churches of that day and even today that he wants to address that first. We can have peace in the church. Christ made peace amongst his body within the church. That's what 14, the rest of 14 and 15 talk about. Now I put the translation that I have for this verse, if you want to read along, on the back of the bulletin. Depending on what translation you have, they will handle this verse differently. The end of 14, the beginning of 15. And if you've been with us from the beginning of Ephesians, you'll know that often punctuation can move around a bit. Meaning depends on the translation you open. Remember, these manuscripts in Greek were in all caps with no spaces and no punctuation. It's not that Paul didn't have in mind where the idea was supposed to stop or where a comma might be, what we call a comma. It's just to save space, they wrote it with no punctuation and no space. Now we have to look at it and figure that out. So here's how I'm going with the rest of verse 14. 
for he himself is our peace, who made both groups one. He destroyed the barrier of the dividing wall, the enmity, period. The problem here is this word enmity. What is the enmity? What is it? Is it the dividing wall? Some translations like the NASB, which I don't like, say it's the, it's the law of God is the enmity. What is it? So put a period, the dividing wall, comma, the enmity, period. On the back of your bulletin, you can, you can see that. I'll put that on there so that it might help you. Formerly, there was disunity. There is there's disunity. But now in Christ, because he's died on the cross and he's redeemed Jews and he's redeemed Gentiles, we have unity in the person of Christ. He's taken two groups and made them one. Two groups. From the time of Abraham, there's been two groups, Jew and Gentile. I know we categorize nations and ethnicities, but not in the Bible. It's just Jew and Gentile. Everybody else, all these nations are Gentiles. But now they can be one in Christ because he made both groups into one. He did that. He did that on the cross. When we come to faith, we enter into that. How can this be? Well, that's the barrier that he destroyed. The barrier that he tore down. He knocked it down. He tore it down with his work on the cross. Christ destroyed the barrier of the dividing wall. Not only is enmity an issue, but what is the dividing wall here? And you can look up five or six different discussions on what they think the dividing wall is. One of the more common ones is that it's a little four and a half foot wall that separated the court of Gentiles and the temple courts from the area the Jews could go into. So you walk in in Jesus' day. It's not in the Bible, but they had put up this little wall. You walk in in Jesus' day, and there's this little barrier there with a sign. And it says, if you go past that sign as a Gentile, you're going to be killed. Now, Paul's accused of taking a Gentile past that. That's why he's arrested in Acts. And this is a, it was a small little wall, you know, four and a half feet tall. But you would know as a Gentile, you could come and worship God, but you couldn't go any further. But if you were of God's people, you could go further. And there's a court of women. And then you could go even further if you were a Jewish male. So some would say this is the dividing wall that Paul's talking about. There's a problem with that interpretation, though. Jerusalem's not in the context here. He's not talking about the temple. Who's he talking to? Ephesian Gentiles. He hadn't been talking about Jerusalem, so that's not in context. he's, He's not talking about this little wall in the courtyard, I don't think, because it's a different word in Greek than is used here. And Paul writes this letter. When he writes it, that little wall in Jerusalem is what? Still standing. The temple's not destroyed until 70 A.D. Paul writes the book of Ephesians or the letter of the Ephesians long before 70 A.D. So how could he say it's torn down, talking about that wall, when it's still there in Jerusalem? And I don't think most Ephesians would have even known about that unless Paul or somebody had told them about that little wall. So what's he talking about there? Well, if you read my translation on the back, this is the the order that it comes in the Greek New Testament, the barrier of the dividing wall, then the enmity. What is the dividing wall? It's the enmity. It's the hostility. Hostility divides Jew and Gentile. It separates Jew and Gentile. It makes no sense to talk about a wall. He's talking about a metaphorical, a figurative wall that separates people. They're separated. They can't come together. They don't want to come together because there is hostility. That's another word for enmity. Hostility, some translations 
put it that way. Well, it's not the law. The law is not enmity. The law is good. The Bible says the law is good. The law is spiritual. In the next verse, we'll look at the law. It's good. It's spiritual. It's a delight. So I don't like how the NASB seems to indicate that the law is the enmity. God did not give the law to be a hostility between Jew and Gentile. That's not what he's talking about there. What is the enmity? What is this wall that divides Jew and Gentile? Well, it's the misuse. It's the misuse of the law, not the law itself. Why is there hostility? Why is there a dividing wall? Because the Jews, who were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, they were supposed to be a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19.4. They were supposed to, like, like, much like we are, tell other people about this God. Now, we're to go out and they were to stay there in the land, but they were to draw people to the one true God. They were to draw people to God. Did they succeed in that? No, they failed. They failed over and over because they cared about their own selfish desires. They cared about their own lust. They committed atrocities and they worshiped eventually idols. But they were created as a nation for God's own possession. And they were supposed to point people to God. And the law, the law was given to separate them. The law was given to separate the believer, the Jew at that time, from the unbelievers, the Gentiles. That was the purpose of the law. But they took it a step further. So you get to the point of Jesus' day and you really see this in the New Testament. They created extra laws, extra traditions. The law is supposed to separate us, but you're a little too close, Gentile. I'm going to push you even further away and create some extra steps you need to take. Some additional traditions and laws. And I'm going to take God's law and I'm going to misuse it. I'm going to mistreat it. I'm going to mistreat the Gentiles, the Jews would have done, as a result of the separation. So God gave them the law, and if they used it rightly, it should point to him. But they took it as a tool, and they looked down their noses, and they said, all those sinners, don't even get close to them. Don't touch them. Don't go through the territory of the Samaritans. If you do, then you've got to go through all these cleansings and all these washings. And remember Jesus when he ate with sinners? When, it, when he saved prostitutes? They looked down their nose at him too. Why? Because he's with sinners. And when he goes into the area of the Samaritans, his disciples say, don't go that way. You can't go through there. And he does. He does anyway. Because his message is also to them. So what is the barrier? What is the hostility? The fact that the Jews took what was good, the law, and they misused it, and they added to it, and they twisted it, and they made it about working your way to God instead of here's the law that points to God. So it's a misuse. It's a mistreatment, and it caused hostility, and Jesus has destroyed that. There's no longer a hostility between Jew and Gentile in the church. There doesn't need to be. There's no longer anything that separates us. Why? Well, he goes a step further in 15. And I think 15 starts with in his flesh. You'll see at the end of, of 14 there, if you put a period after the enmity on the back of the bulletin there, the next sentence would say, in his flesh, he nullified the law of commandments contained in ordinances. He nullified in his flesh by his death on the cross. That's his flesh there. It's not just being born, but it's what's already been referred to, the blood that he shed. On the cross, 
He nullified the Mosaic law. That's what it says. That's the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Everybody that you would read agrees that that's the Mosaic law. NASB has abolishing there. If you're looking at that translation, it has abolish. I, I like better nullify. Abolish is a little too strong because Jesus says in Matthew 5.17, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did come to fulfill them, he says. Not to abolish, but to fulfill. Abolish should be completely do away with. The idea would be rip it out of your Bible. It doesn't matter to Christians. Nullify means it's still important and it has a use. Paul talks a lot about that in other places. And it should still be in our Bible, though. But we're not trying to live under the law. We're not subjecting ourselves to the law. It's been canceled out. It's been nullified. There's a new law. There's a new covenant. We're not going back under the old covenant. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Don't go back under the old. There's something new. So Christ has nullified the law of commandments. Paul says, how is this hostility between Jew and Gentile broken down? Well, he's come and he's, he's taken away the thing that they were misusing. He's nullified the law. He's nullified the law. Now, Jew and Gentile can be in the church together, living with one another in peace, because the, neither one of them has to put themselves under the Mosaic law. This word I translate nullify, the NSB does abolish. It's katargeo in Greek. It means to cause something to lose its power or effectiveness, to invalidate, to make powerless, to make inoperative. How has Christ solved this hostility? He's made the Mosaic law inoperative. It has no effect on the new covenant believer. It has no effect. And he's talking about the whole Mosaic law here. The whole Mosaic law. It's all been invalidated. It was given as one unit. We often hear of the three divisions, the ceremonial, right, and the moral, and the civil. That's the way we talk about it as Protestants. It's not the way the Jews viewed it. It's not the way the Old Testament viewed it. It was all one package. Old covenant, Mosaic law. Old covenant had the old covenant law. And Jesus says, that's been nullified. Paul says to, to the Ephesian Gentiles, this has been taken away. It's, it's not an issue anymore. It's still important. We can learn about God. We can learn about creation. We can learn about Israel. We can learn about the covenants. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians that it's there to teach us not to stumble, not to stray. There's many lessons in the old, but we are not submitting ourselves to the Mosaic law. That's just going to cause division. That's just going to cause division. Well, the old covenant given to God's people, Israel at Mount Sinai, has come to an end in Christ. That's what the New Testament teaches. Romans 7, 6, we've been released, set free from the law. Romans 7, 4, and Galatians 2, 19, we have died to the law. Galatians 4, 5, we are redeemed from the law. Romans 6, 14 and 15, we're no longer under the law. The law was temporary. Paul says in Galatians, it was a guardian for Israel until Christ came. It had a time. It had a place. Now Christ has come. Things are different. Why would you go back under the law? Romans 10, 4, for Christ is the end, meaning the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You're a believer in Christ? The Mosaic law has nothing on you. It has nothing on you. 
Well, what does that mean? Does that mean we don't have a law? Are we lawless? Are we antinomians? Are we saying just go do what you want and it doesn't matter? No, no. With the old covenant, there was a law. And with the new covenant, there is a law. Old covenant has a law. New covenant has a law. The new covenant has made the old obsolete. Just read Hebrews and it it goes back to this over and over. Well, Paul in other places talks about the law of Christ. What is the new covenant law? It's all the commands that Christ gave. Many of them match up to the Ten Commandments. Many of them match up to the moral principles. Most of what we call the moral law, which is just a name we came up with, you'll see it picked up by Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. But Paul says that's the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.20, Paul says he's no longer under the Mosaic law. And remember, is Paul a Jew or a Gentile? He's a Jew. He's been saved by Christ. He says he's no longer under law, but he's now under the law of Christ. So there's a difference there. Jesus Christ has established a new covenant, and it's regulated on a different basis. The presence of the Spirit in us, working through us to fulfill the commands of Christ. That's what the new covenant promised. I will give you a new spirit, a new heart. I'll put my spirit within you so that you can obey the commands that I give you. We're not under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant law anymore. We're under the New Covenant law of Christ. This is a vital issue for the church today. We can never think, well, that's a battle that they had back then. It's still happening in churches today. I just saw a video uh, where Joel Osteen goes and tells people not to eat pork and not to eat shrimp. Because it's in the Bible that as God's people, we're not to eat those things. And 20,000 people are sitting there doing what he says and listening to that. Well, we see it in other ways, don't we? The Seventh-day Adventists, they say that we're to worship on Saturday. And only on Saturday. And if you don't worship on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, then you're probably not even a believer. Many Seventh-day Adventists would say that. We also see this in the Christian Hebrew Roots Movement. It's becoming more and more popular. This is where Christians will submit themselves back under the law. They will wear the clothing requirements, the food requirements. I don't know how they do the sacrifices. That's not possible today. Uh, They will often strive for a government that that would put themselves under the Mosaic law. They're wearing these Jewish uh, clothing with tassels, head coverings. They're going and getting remarried under a Jewish type of wedding ceremony. They're Judaizers. That's really what it is. You have to be strong against this kind of thing. You can love your friends and family members that might be involved in that, but that's Judaizers. They're trying to tell you, even if it's subtle, to go back under the law. This is clear in Scripture over and over. The book of Galatians is all about this issue. They, they were told in Galatia they had to be circumcised and submit themselves to the law of Moses. And Paul says, if you do that, then I don't even know if you're saved. He's that strong. He says, that's another gospel. How can people come into those churches in Galatia, Paul says, and teach you that? Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. That's free from the law. Therefore, keep standing firm. You got to stand firm because people are going to try to put you back under the yoke. It's called legalism. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery, Paul says. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. Don't just stop there. You've got to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. 
I would never want that to be said about me. You've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, if you speak to the people in the Hebrew Roots Movement, they're not going to say they're trying to be justified by law, but essentially they are through their actions, through putting themselves back under the yoke of slavery. You remember Acts 10? You should be reading through your Bible every year and you come across Acts and they're struggling with this issue in the church early on. And the Jews, they're not quite sure what they're supposed to be doing. Can they eat unclean food or not now that they're in the church? And Peter, that was a big issue with him. Remember, he would act a different way when there were Jews in the room versus all Gentiles. And and Paul called them out on that. Well, in Acts 10, Peter is asleep and he sees this vision, this dream. And remember, the sheet rolls down with all these unclean animals on it. You know, like catfish, shrimp, pork. And a voice came to him and says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, by no means, Lord. So he knows it's God. He says, I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. I've never done that. And again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. It's a new covenant. It's a new law, Peter. You can eat these things now. Yeah, you might be a Jew ethnically, and there's still promises that God made in the Old Testament to the Jewish nation, but you're in the church, Peter, and you can eat these things. And you need to eat these things to show the Gentiles that you're one with them in Christ. Well, this really came to a a big head in Acts 15. Let's go to Acts 15. I'm spending time on this because it is a problem even in churches today. This Hebrew Roots movement is growing It's growing. Last I looked, there were three or four meeting places just in San Antonio for these types of groups. And they they also make their way into other churches. Acts 15, starting in verse 1. So there's a problem. Should Gentiles submit themselves to the Mosaic law? Should they? they? They've been saved. Almost everyone at the time is Jewish that's a Christian. But now Gentiles are coming into the church. So what are they supposed to do with that? How do they deal with that? The apostles even have to get together and consider what the scriptures teach on this. So in verse uh, 1 of Acts 15, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You're not a Christian unless you get under the law. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren." So Paul's going out, he's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, they're being saved, and the Judaizers are following Paul in his wake, telling believers to submit themselves under the law. So let's settle this once and for all. We're going to go up to Jerusalem. James is still there, the apostle. There's a lot of elders, early Christians who've been there a long time serving as elders. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. They reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Are we under the law of Moses? We're about to find out here. Verse 6. 
the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days, in the early days, God made a choice among you that by the mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God promised it in the old. Now he's making it happen early on in the church. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. They've got the same spirit as us. You see where he's already going here? He's saying, you know, it's amazing. You say they can't be saved unless they submit to the law, but they have the same spirit as us already. He continues. And he, that's God, made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. You say they can't be saved, but they've been cleansed. They've got the spirit. It's all done through faith. Verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Why are you going to go back and make them do it? We couldn't do it. Our fathers couldn't do it. What makes you think these Gentiles are going to be able to do it? Peter says that's crazy. And he says it's putting God to the test. It's sinful to do such a thing. But we believe, Peter says, that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So they, they, James and the elders come up with a ruling and they say, Gentiles don't have to be submissive to the law of Moses. It's not needed. Just don't offend your Jewish brother. You know, don't invite him over and have some bloody strangled meat there on the table. That's offensive. They're never going to hear the gospel. So this idea of, of Hebrew roots and going back to be like a Pharisee is completely, completely unbiblical. This is teaching us that we can be one in the church, in Christ, without this kind of separation. We're also seeing this in a different way. We're seeing not the law necessarily being used here, but we're seeing a split in the churches along skin color lines, along social justice movements. We're seeing the church take in the world's terms and start chopping up different sections of the church. It's called intersectionality, critical race theory. Things of the world, everyone admits these things started out in the world. Now they're coming into the church and they're saying, oh, this group is different over here than this group. And, and if you guys don't do what they say, then you're not a Christian. And oh, this group over here, and, and some are even saying that the homosexual gay Christianity, gay Christianity should have a say in what churches do. And churches are being split by this kind of thing. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians. It's very closely related to this issue of Jew and Gentile. This idea that there's all kinds of different ethnicities and skin colors and nationalities. That's true, but we're all one in Christ. We're all one in the church. And we ought not to be separating in the church based on that. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 3.11. There's no distinction between Greek and Jew. Okay, we've already kind of talked about that here. But he goes on in Colossians. Circumcised and uncircumcised barbarian, that's everybody who's not a Greek, that's a Gentile, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. 
There's no separation between Jew and Gentile, and there's no separation based on nationality when it comes to being with Christ, one in Christ. Of course, there will be separation if it's a language barrier, right? In Mexico, I expect that churches would be speaking in Spanish for the most part. In different places in Africa, I would expect that they would preach and teach in the language. That's obvious separation. But if we can speak the same language, we ought to be worshiping in the same church, if at all possible, representing the people that live around the area that we go to church in. We are one in Christ. Well, returning to the text now, he goes on to say in 15, the purpose of nullifying the law. He's nullified the Mosaic law. The purpose is so that in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. There it is again, peace. Christ's death on the cross for sinners has brought about a completely new thing in the timeline of God's plan. This is completely new. As a Gentile, you don't become part of Israel. You become part of the spiritual promises to Israel, but you're not now an ethnic Israelite. You know, you don't change your ethnicity to Jewish. And the Jews don't lose their ethnicity and suddenly become Gentiles. This is something new. Something completely new that's not been seen before. We can't use the same old categories. Judaism is no more. There's no use in going back to it. Your Gentile pagan past is no more. There's no use going back to it. This is something completely new. It's a new thing. It's a new man, not Individually, each person, that's true in 2 Corinthians 5. But the new man is the body of Christ. This is something new. And he's established peace. There's a new covenant. There's a new community. Well, that was all major point number two and number one. Now, number two, we have peace with God. Christ made peace between Jew and Gentile, and he also made peace with God. He also made peace with God because we have, we have a problem. Even though the, the, the Mosaic law is there, we still have to live up to it. And even if we've never heard of the law as an unbeliever, we still have to live up to the law of the heart, Romans 2 says, the, the, the idea of right and wrong. You still know right and wrong, even if you grew up in a jungle and never read the Bible. You still know right and wrong. You still sin against God in your conscience. That's what Romans 1 and 2 is all about. We have a problem. So Christ has come, and now he's nullified that law. In verse 16, and we might reconcile, he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. He switched the new enmity here is not between Jew and Gentile, but it's between man and God. There's enmity there. There's enmity. God created us, he owns everything including every person ever created and he expects them to praise him to give thanks and to have perfect obedience to his holy law believer or unbeliever that's what he's expecting can you do that adam and eve couldn't do it you couldn't do it either man has broken god's law they've sinned this creates an eternal sin debt this creates a hostility with god how are we going to resolve that oh we're just going to work for it are we just going to work off our sin debt how's that going for you you work off your sin debt. Let's just say you could. Before you're even done working off all your sin debt, if you could, you've already sinned again. That's an eternal sin debt, so you can't even work for it anyway. You're stuck. That's why we need a Savior. We can't, 
save ourselves by good works. So we need a savior. And, and Christ reconciles us to God. If you're in Christ, you're reconciled to God. You've been brought near. And it's done through the work of the cross. He says that right here in verse 16. That means 2,000 years ago it was already done. Not that you were born saved. You had to have faith. But the work to accomplish it, to reconcile us, has already been done. All you got to do is repent. Believe. Have faith. Turn from your works and your, your efforts and turn to Christ as Savior. He's the only one who can give us peace with God. He's the only one who can give us peace with God. We have an eternal sin debt. How did he do that? Well, one of the ways he did that is, of course, dying on the cross. That's the major thing. But Paul is going a little deeper and saying he also nullified that law. He's not bringing you through the law. He's bringing you directly to him through the cross of Christ. All Jews are saved. If they're saved, they're saved by the cross of Christ. All Gentiles saved by the cross of Christ as well. Stop trying to go to the law to get to God. Third major point, the message of peace. So the result is that we have been brought near. The making of peace is how Christ accomplished that by nullifying the law and destroying the hostility. And then lastly, the message of peace, the message of the gospel. He quotes from Isaiah in verse 17, Isaiah 57, 19. Now, Isaiah's talking to wayward Israel. They've sinned against God and been sent off to exile. Isaiah says, peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. And they would have read that and thought, those who are near are the Jews who stayed in the land. Those who are far are the exiles. And Paul, I mean, Peter says, I mean, Paul says here, Paul says, those who are near are the Jews and those who are far are the Gentiles. The Gentiles have been brought into the promises of God if they believe in Christ. And he came and, and Christ came and he preached that message of the gospel to them. That there can be peace with God. If you're a Jew, you're close to God, but you're not there. You don't have saving faith if you're trying to work the law to get to God. Those who are near, he preached that message. And those who are far, the Gentiles who had no Bible, he still preached that message of peace with God. Well, when did he do it? We have to ask that question. When you read a passage like this, you've got to say, when did that happen? Well, the message of peace is including the cross. It's including the, the death on the cross and the resurrection. So, yes, Christ pointed to it in his ministry, but he hadn't accomplished it all yet. And his ministry was to whom? The Jews. He had occasional dealings with Gentiles, and he, and he proclaimed the, the message to the woman at the well some of those entire inside an area. But for the most part, his focus was on the Jews. When did he preach to the Gentiles, including the Ephesians? He did it through the apostles. They're his messengers. It's Christ's authority. It's Christ's message. And he sent them out with the message. And he's working through them to accomplish it. He's working through them. None of this stuff like Beth Moore talks about where we have Paul versus Jesus. You know what that is? It's an excuse to not obey what Paul said. You know, Jesus didn't write any scripture. Who wrote Matthew? A disciple of Jesus named Matthew. Who wrote Luke? A follower of Jesus named Luke who was under Paul's leadership. Who wrote Peter? 
Peter, the disciple. Who wrote Ephesians? Paul, the apostle. So Peter, Paul, all these apostles, Matthew, John, they were sent out by Christ to preach a message and write down Scripture. So we ought never to say, well, there's Jesus' words in red, and then there's Paul. I don't really like Paul, right? Some people joke, some liberal scholars. Jesus I've loved, and Paul I've hated. It's not funny to those of us who know that it's all Scripture. So he sent them out, and he's preaching through them. And he's, what, what's the message? He's come, and he's done the work of redemption. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's going to pick this up in the next chapter, Ephesians 3. He's going to talk about how he's been sent as an apostle to the Gentiles. How did Christ preach to the Gentiles? Through the apostle Paul, who was picked apart by the Holy Spirit in Antioch and sent out all the way across to Rome. Well, the last part, verse 18. This message tells us we have peace with God. What does that mean? Through Him, through Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have our access in one spirit to the Father. We have access. We can't take that for granted as a Christian. Of course we have access. We're used to that. Anybody can pray to God and be heard is what we often think as a Christian. Well, of course God can hear who He chooses. The Bible promises that He will hear His people's prayers. Promises that he will save his people. We have access to him. We can come to him for salvation. We can come to him for sanctification. We can come to him for our daily needs. We can come to him for all things. Other people don't have that. Unbelievers do not have that kind of access to God. And we come to him through Christ in one spirit. One spirit, the Holy Spirit. You see the Trinity here? You've got the Son, who's done the work of redemption to bring us to God. You've got the Spirit, who in His power brings us before the Father. And then you've got the Father, who reigns upon the throne, hears our prayers, answers our prayers. That's where we end with this peace. We have peace because of Christ. He's done away with the law. We don't have to subject ourselves to that yoke of slavery. He's given us a new law, but it's not burdensome, He says. It's light. It's light. And he's told us to proclaim this message. The apostles proclaimed it. They recorded it. A message that we can have peace with God. It's in scripture now. We're not apostles. There's none living today. But they put it down here for us. So we can take the message of peace to the world. Let's rejoice in this peace. Let's take the Lord's Supper. And consider all that we know Christ did on the cross for us. Forgiveness I've mentioned today. Propitiation. Peace with God. Canceling, nullifying the law. We could go on and on with that list. Think of those things as you take the Lord's Supper. Lord, we do pray that you would give us a heart of faith here. Help us to understand some of these deeper doctrines of the Bible. Paul wanted these early Christians to know. Some of these Christians only believers for three or four years. And he wants them to know. Help us to determine and understand and interpret Scripture properly help us to know that we're not under a yoke of slavery anymore but we have freedom in christ let us evangelize the lost and stand firm upon the gospel of grace not the gospel of law but the gospel of grace
We rejoice in the name of Christ. Amen.